This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today on the Goop podcast is Dr. Nina Vossen. She is the chief medical officer of a really revolutionary mental health company called Real, which I heard about and actually invested in and which she will tell you all about. She is really a modern psychiatrist we discussed what this year of extraordinary circumstances has magnified in her own practice and also what she thinks is important to recognize as a country that the psychological impact of disasters is both larger and longer lasting than the medical impact. I really believe in democratizing mental well-being and for diminishing stigma around mental health really now more than ever. So it was very special to talk to Nina about what mental health should look like, not only in 2020, but beyond. So let's get to my chat with Dr. Vossen. I'm so interested in modern psychiatry because I always wonder, you know, obviously you went to medical school and I mean, you're like Harvard, Harvard, Stanford. I, I can tell you're not a, an overachiever at all. Right, right back at you. So. Yeah. How old were you when you won your first Oscar? Oh my God. Well, too young to know what the fuck was happening. <laughs> so in medical school now, when you're studying, when you're studying to be a psychiatrist, is there any kind of mind body connection? Is that an emerging field at all? I know at Stanford, there is that, right? Yes. I was just curious, like, it, does that exist? And how is, what is sort of your definition of the modern psychiatrist? 
Yeah. I think it's definitely getting better. So I was in school now almost 10 years ago, like five to 10 years ago. I think that why it's getting better, I think there's certainly been hypotheses around there being a very strong mind-body connection, but now we actually have the scientific research to say so. So for example, serotonin, like so serotonin, all all the, the SSRIs, medications like Prozac, for example, that we use to treat depression and anxiety, one of the most common medications we have in psychiatry is addressing serotonin and trying to increase the levels of serotonin. But what we know is there's more serotonin in the gut than there is in the brain. And so I think that as we're learning more about just that actual, like the biological level, then it does really make its way into the curriculum in a way that a lot of the times the curriculum wants to be the most kind of scientifically forward, which is great, but it also then means that there's a lot going on at the time that you're not necessarily learning because it'll come out in a few years. So I think that back, back when I was in school, there definitely was some, but it was more, I still think on the theoretical level or like understanding maybe how different things fit together. I think that since then and today, there's a lot more like their entire centers focused on mind body medicine, and people who are specializing exactly in that. And so I do think that to your question, like, what does modern psychiatry look like? I do absolutely think that it is recognizing much more of this connection. And, and when then thinking about treatment, looking for like kind of treatments that are not this in, in addition to the standard treatments, thinking about other ways that you can treat and address address these issues. I also think that nutrition actually is something where we in medical school, I think we had like one week of nutrition education, which is crazy. Like absolute, right? <laughs> Absolutely crazy. When, when, and I know I actually, I heard your podcast with Mark Hyman and I, I was just thinking about like, it's such a phenomenally powerful part of every element of our health. And only now more and more, I think, is there both more education and more kind of taking it into the medical realm? I think in some, time, some ways nutrition was, was its own field and is its own field, certainly. And there are nutritionists and PhDs in nutrition, but when you're doing everything from psychiatry to surgery to primary care or you know OBGYN, really being able to assess and give recommendations for nutrition, just like we do for tobacco or for exercise, I think is really, really important. And, and I think that's one of the areas where there's really exciting research that's coming around. And I hope that that then gets integrated into the school system and into what we eat and into every element of health. I absolutely agree. And I think we are holistic. It's we are we are one organism with mind, bodies, hearts, cells, tissue. And so the idea that we can sort of cordon off and section off different parts of the body or the mind or the heart and say, oh, it's it's not related because I've always been really fascinated with that the sort of Rudolf Steiner approach that I once had a cyst on my ovary that was bursting and I had to get it removed. This is a while ago. But I was speaking to an integrative MD who said, if you have something on your ovary, that means there's some level of like your, your femininity has been invaded. And I thought, oh my God, that's so what, how did you know, you know? And so it just started me on, I, I just, I can't, I really do believe that on some level, at some point it will be more integrated in that way. And I'm just looking forward to seeing what happens when that happens. Yeah. I, I think it's getting a lot better. And, and also I think realizing more about the kind of like 
the way we talk about things, the way that we bring treatments to people at all stages, right? From the, like from prevention through early intervention, through diagnosis, treatment, all, all of that, I think is, is getting better. And I, and I think it is a like, very exciting time to be like talking about and thinking about these issues because there is so much that's happening and at, at all levels, right? From the like basic science research through medicine, through policy, society, education, all, all of these different places. That's all interconnected as well. You're absolutely right. So to practice psychiatry in in 2020, tell me a little bit about what that's like. Yes, yes. And what I'd love to ask actually is what what is your concept? Like when you think about psychiatry in 2020, what's your conception of what that looks like? Well, it's so interesting because my conception of psychiatry was always like 1970s. You go and lie on a couch and you just talk for an hour, five days a week, and then you go home. If you need some kind of mood stabilizer, then it's prescribed. And I obviously know that's not the case anymore. And so wondering how a modern psychiatrist who was in the middle of a huge psychological global crisis, right? How do you approach a patient and, and how much does medication play a role immediately or later? Like, how do you, I'm always so curious, like, how do you begin the process of, of diagnosis? And so within mental health, one of the first things I think that was really striking to me is just how there's so many different types of therapy and different ways to approach treatment and analysis, which is being on the couch five days a week and, and talking for an hour. And oftentimes the therapist not talking or just nodding or saying like, not, or like not giving advice, things like that. We actually never, like we never really even learned that actually in, in training, maybe like a day or something, but that, but the point being that that is actually, I think very like the antiquated way. And in particular, when we look at research and see what does research actually shows works and for a broad population, that model is just kind of not, it's not, you can't replicate it. It doesn't necessarily even like lead to the most progress. So that's, I think what gets us to more of what modern medicine looks like today when it comes to psychiatry. And I think that a lot of it is first starting when we, to your question of like, when someone comes in, what, what am I thinking about? It really is starting with looking at a holistic view of who is this person, everything from how are they walking in and making eye contact to the words that they're using to then actually in talking to them and understanding their history, the three main areas that we focus on, the model is called biopsychosocial. So we're trying to understand the biological elements, meaning like their genetics, DNA, how, they, how they're actually presenting from the biological perspective, like what does serotonin and dopamine and what do they all look like? Then the psychological, how they're talking, thinking about themselves, how they react to stress and what they do in terms of their thoughts, their emotions, their behaviors. And then finally, his, like, kind of his environmental, which includes historical, like childhood of trauma, or what does the, the workplace currently look like? What are your relationships like? And really being able to then integrate <clears throat> all three of those into building a much, a much more holistic view of who this person is. So I think that's the first part is getting those biopsychosocial together. And then the second part is what we really call triage. What are the different conditions that this person could be dealing with? Could it be trauma? Could it be depression, anxiety? And then also how severe is it? And I think the severity part is what really especially helps with treatment is, is this someone, for example, for whom I can write a prescription for exercise? And I do do that literally like on the prescription pad, we'll write things about exercise or, or gratitude journaling or things like that. Or is this someone who absolutely needs to start a medication? Or is this someone who might even need to be in the hospital for a little bit and kind of gradually then get, get out of the hospital? But in, in terms of thinking about the severity and how quickly we need to act to try to make those changes. One of the things that I think is 
So in medical school, we go from surgery to neurology, to radiology, to psychiatry, and we're seeing how other fields deal with these issues. And what strikes me about psychiatry in terms of ways that it's different is that I think when we present treatment options, certainly in other areas, patients do also have a decision, right? Like a surgeon might say, I think you should get surgery tomorrow over a month from now, or even should I get a second opinion? Maybe I don't need surgery, maybe medication's okay. But for the most part, it seems like it's a much higher percentage of patients really accepting those treatment options. I think in psychiatry, really because of stigma and misunderstanding and miseducation out there, there is a lot of preconceived notions around med both medications and therapy and what might work, what might not work, how long I should do this. And that's so fundamentally different from how we think about other diseases. The second thing that I think is makes psychiatry different is really around measurement. I think that when we look at other areas, of medicine, you're drawing your blood, you're getting an x-ray, and you have all this objective, quantifiable data to help you understand how you are. And then you can use that same thing to figure out, am I getting better? How do I change what I'm my, my treatment choices? And that's something that 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 we're that we're actually working on at the, the company I work with, Real. And I think that changing the way that people engage and even understand themselves. That's like, I think the one big, one big culture change that I hope to see. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. I love the company Real and I invested in the company and such an amazing female founder. And part of the thing that I loved was this kind of disruption of therapy and how it's offered both from a price point perspective and from an anonymity perspective. And just the idea that offering a platform where people can come and do anonymous group therapy or elect one-on-one -on -one therapy really does help, I think, to open a portal, especially for that generation to say, okay, I'm capable of being vulnerable. I want to have a better life or I want to do better than my parents did or whatever the case may be. Do you think that, I mean, are you seeing, I don't know what your title is there, chief medical officer? Exactly, yeah, chief medical officer. <laughs> so how are you seeing people use the platform? Is it primarily women? Is it, are people in groups? I would love to hear a little bit about how you see people using it. 
So you mentioned, so Ariella, our founder is our CEO founder, just absolutely phenomenal. I actually met her. I'm a professor of psychiatry at Stanford and teach some courses on mental health. And so she was a student in my course a few years ago and was, you know, by far the rock student. And now several years later is starting this company and really has a, I think, deep insight into how do we solve these problems in, in completely different ways. What she's really tried to create this company around is reimagining what therapy and mental health care should look like. The one-on-one -on -one model, like even as you said, like when we think about what is mental health, what is psychiatry, it's be being like one-on-one -on -one with a therapist in their office on the couch. But if we think about that model, it's really based on convenience and scheduling and just the business models of healthcare, not actually on what is best scientifically or socially. And I try to make these analogies to education or exercise. Like in education, you can have a one-on-one -on -one tutor. In exercise, you can have a personal trainer. And that's certainly there, but what we also know is that groups and classes actually allow you to reach more people and can create even a better user experience. And, and more importantly, really get it out to everyone, right? There aren't enough personal trainers for everyone to have one. There aren't enough one-on-one -on -one tutors for everyone to have one. And similarly, there are not enough therapists for everyone to have one. And so when we realize that that model is not actually what has been like discovered in a lab of, oh, this is the way to do it and actually rethink how this kind of care, how these ideas get delivered to people and how they engage in them. When people ask me about the biggest issues in mental health, there are a few things I say. One is that I say stigma is problems one, two, and three. Right. And it really, it just, that's how pervasive of a problem it is. It does everything from preventing people from seeking care to begin with. It changes the way that they conceptualize what care should look like. There's so much self-blame around elements of mental health. And, and then even the way that family employers, children talk about it is, is just very antiquated. And that's all really based in stigma. What we're wanting to do, and one of the, our taglines is celebrate therapy. So my father is, a, is an oncologist, and what he talks about is how after chemo, people will ring a bell and celebrate that they finished chemo and have that like celebratory moment of realizing what they overcame and how strong it was, how strong they had to be to get through that treatment. And I think that same thing is what needs to happen for mental health. And in addition to celebrating, we really, it, what, it, what we're trying to do with the company is let people do things on their own terms and in their own way, right? So like any time of day or go back and repeat things. I, I know myself, like I, I do have a one-on-one -on -one therapist and I really wish I could record my sessions and go back and play it at like midnight on Friday when I'm not able to fall asleep or when I'm nervous for a date or something and just hear what she has to say. But that's exactly what we're trying to do is, is have things like that, that people, that it is recorded, that you can easily go back and you can even like search for the word or repeat those five minutes and actually engage with therapy in the same way that you might exercise or education or anything else. When we think about barriers, one of the biggest barriers to mental health care is just cost. And so we've created this platform where real is less than $1 a day, but then also scalable. So being able to reach thousands of people at a time in the way that I, for me as a psychiatrist, if I'm seeing people one-on-one, -on -one, the most number of people I can see in a day, maybe 10, maybe 20, right? Like 20, if it's really, really fast and I'm probably not sleeping and, and just really going back to back. So to be able to create things that then anyone can access, I think is really different. The other thing that we're doing is we're really thinking about what that content is in terms of how you're engaging in your care. So the first thing that we're doing is what we call problem-specific pathways. 
we looked at a lot of data and what we saw is that the more targeted you can actually be in around a problem, the better the results. So I'll give you an example. One of our pathways is specifically a career pathway for women of color. And what we've seen in where we're collecting a lot of the data to understand who's getting better and why. And th that pathway, for example, we are seeing levels of anxiety and depression decrease faster and for more people than what I would see for, with met, a lot of medications. And what we're realizing is that rather than something like 12 one-on-one -on -one general sessions of therapy, being able to actually go deep have other people around you who are also dealing with that same issue and, and learning like really practical strategies that you can take and apply to your everyday life, that that ends up really helping people make better progress quicker and last, last, you know, last a long time as well. The second big area is, is groups. And so we have a whole suite of events and roundtables and like group therapy. And I think that's been really one of the things that in this time of quarantine, it's almost like we've been given this ability for groups to work really well in the way that why I think before quarantine, there just weren't more groups is it's hard logistically, right? For everyone to show up to the same place at the same time every week. But now we you know we're all at home and you can do all of this by your phone or your, your computer. It really makes it a lot more convenient. And people are really showing that they love getting to have someone else who's going through the same thing. Have trust with people and be able to feel that proximity and especially in this weird time. So people can sign up for a group therapy session online. Exactly. Yeah. And, and what we want is we want to be able to both like access a much bigger group of people, but also for people for whom maybe they have like a couple issues, like maybe a little insomnia or stress every now and then, but might not have quote, like major depressive disorder as a diagnosis. But wherever you are on that spectrum, whether it's sort of what we call subclinical or just a few issues all the way through kind of having that official diagnosis that everyone can be more proactive rather than reactive and think about addressing their mental health as a daily part of their life and not just something to do when things get worse. Right. So, so how does it work? So I, I go to real and what, what happens? What, what are the different things I can choose to partake in? Yeah. The, the first thing that we have you do is I just, is a self-assessment and that goes back to measurement. And I, I was talking a few minutes ago about how I think measurement is really changing. I think this is one of the biggest opportunities for the entire field. And what there, there are three things that people get to understand about themselves. The first is what we call the real 10. It's actually a new scale that we developed in order to look at all kind of very holistically around mental health, everything from the traditional things like mood and anxiety all the way through self-esteem, sense of purpose, gratitude, and all these areas that we know holistically are really important for overall health and wellness. And especially, as I said, along that spectrum that really help you kind of continually get better. So you, you start off by taking this real 10 and being able to assess where are you in these 10 different areas, and then really think about what your current state looks like, and then also where you want to go. Right. And what, like, what are you, what do you first want to work on? And then we also look at traditional measurements around things like depression and anxiety so that we can really be both, I think, very scientifically robust about what we're doing and also help you really understand where you are and where you want to go.
And, and I think measurement is really important because it's destigmatizing and it, because it makes things more objective. People don't think I'm a bad person because their blood pressure is high, for example, right? It makes the whole thing more scientific and treats it like physical health in a, in a better way. So that's the first experience. And then once you've done that, we have three main offerings, three main categories of offerings that you can engage in. The first is these very specific pathways, which are 12 week, almost like courses that you can address. I mentioned earlier, like careers for women of color or understanding your sexuality or thinking about your upbringing and how your family relationships are like impacting who you are today. Even things for couples and just a lot of offerings that we've heard from people directly. Like I really want to address this particular topic. The second is around call them round tables and really like group therapy around particular topics. So right now we're doing one for parents, knowing just how really difficult parenting is at this time, especially as well as for the LGBTQ population and thinking about different groups where you can be in a community of people who are, who, you know, are dealing with similar issues and really engage and learn from each other in, in a meaningful way. And then we have a lot of events. I think that's an opportunity, like a webinar in the evening type of thing to learn about something like like medication that you might not know about or specific diseases. Like right now we're doing one on um, seasonal affective disorder and we just did one on ADHD. And then the final element is community of being able to connect with other people, everything from questions and answers through this like online platform to just really creating an experience where maybe you'll go through a pathway with a friend, just like you might invite someone to your soul cycle class. You actually go through this with someone and you can be talking about it offline and online and really supporting each other to get better. That's so awesome. What do you think you know, is the most common burden that you see women carrying these days? Yeah, yeah. The most common thing. Overall, in my own patients, I've seen really the highest levels of stress and anxiety that I've, that I've ever seen before. And I think for women, women in particular have been disproportionately impacted, especially since the pandemic started because of a disproportionate burden of childcare, especially that they're taking on. But even when we look at like unemployment numbers, women have been more likely to lose their job than men. And I think a lot of the systemic barriers that already exist for women have gotten magnified in this setting. So I think that that in this time where there's so many things we're dealing with, right? We're dealing with unemployment, isolation, very real concerns about a virus, a communicable disease. And these other things are kind of work going on top of it to then lead to people having a really, really hard time. And I want to do want to have a little positive note, which is I think I've also been very impressed, especially with my patients of their ability to thrive and flourish and find positivity, even at such a historically challenging time. But at the same time, I think it's really important to recognize that as a country, we know that the psychological impact of disasters is both larger and longer lasting than the medical impact. And so every day I, I go to the New York Times and I see the new number of people who have been diagnosed and the number of people in the hospital and deaths. And these are staggering numbers. But if the pandemic follows the pattern of previous disasters, the eventual mental health toll will be even higher. And so I think that that really is like a call to action for us as a society to really think about that now that we know that, what can we do to actually proactively 
change things and understand like what we're dealing with. There's physical distancing and social isolation and there's systemic racism. And there was so much anxiety around the election and it really exacerbated traumas that people were already having. What we're seeing then as a result is this huge spike in, in people struggling with mental health. We're seeing increases in suicidal thoughts, in alcohol sales. One of the crisis hotlines actually saw a 1,000% increase in its use. And we're seeing increased trauma, things like difficulty sleeping, decreased sense of safety, irritability, distraction, even risky behaviors like drug use and interpersonal conflict, child abuse, domestic violence, like really, really concerning things. What we've seen is that we actually go through these very consistent patterns when we are dealing with a disaster and almost these predictable phases where we can see what's going to happen and what might happen. And one of the things I'm most concerned about actually is suicidality because suicidality often doesn't actually peak until later on in the process, which might be years after the disaster. One of the most fascinating statistics I've seen about all of this is that during the Great Depression, suicide rates actually didn't peak until three years after Black Tuesday. So what that means is that we know that this is going to be something that we see the sequela really for years to come and that we need to think about how can we be very proactive about dealing with things. And like even mentioned alcohol sales for the very first time in my life, I've had not one, but two patients show up intoxicated on one on alcohol, one on marijuana to our sessions. And I think that that just shows people are really, really struggling and especially kids, women, racial minority communities, right? These are the kind of subsets where access to resources is e even worse. So what can we do to really to really make things better? I think that's that's kind of what the next the next step is. How much of I, I always wonder with something like this, like you have an external disaster, right? I mean, it, we've seen, well, you're a lot younger than I am, but we've seen a lot just in my lifetime. I just look from from when I was born to now, between Vietnam, 9-11, Katrina on and on in 2008 economic crisis, there's been, there's been a lot. And so I'm sure there's a lot of visibility into how we recover as a society from these things. But I'm curious, how much of it is the external disaster and how much of it is pre-existing problems with shame or abuse or unresolved trauma that is already within us that then this sort of blows the cover off as opposed to the external disaster being what provocates the trauma. Yeah. I, th I think you're, I, I think it really is both of those. I think that the, w these underlying traumas, it's almost like th there's this tipping point that ends up needing to happen for the, for the trauma to kind of manifest. Or when you look at a lot of the symptoms, sometimes they're, we're all resilient in different ways, but we also process things differently. And so some people might have, might go through the same issues, but what it ends up looking like, there's, there's a whole range, a whole kind of bell curve around what that looks like and how that shows up in your life. And so when you're already at risk, and then there's another, another insult, another stressor that comes about, that ends up really making things worse and something that you might've been able to tolerate or might've been able to kind of get, get through ends up really becoming that big issue. And I was talking earlier about the biopsychosocial, you know, these kind of three 
components that lead to having, that lead to basically where you are on that kind of spectrum from complete illness to wellness. And I think that similarly, when we think about, in this case, the pandemic or the quarantine is like this environmental or social issue that is then also entwined with things like systemic racism and all these other issues. And so they kind of each almost like takes its own toll to then lead to what, what that looks like. So I really think it's both the underlying things as well as then just the every day of dealing with this new disaster in ways that we never have before. To understand kind of the positive element of this is that when we think about trauma, it's really important to also recognize how trauma ends up helping people really be more resilient. And so I, I have a private practice specifically with executives and entrepreneurs. And one of the things that we see is that when you've had trauma, and actually I know you you were quoting uh, Robert Sternberg, right? So Robert Sternberg does research on wisdom. And when you look at adversity, what he's seen is that depending on the like the time of life that you're experiencing it, adversity can make people more compassionate and have a better ability to balance their needs and other people's needs. When we look at trauma, we actually see that there's some evidence that shows that trauma can make people even better. And specifically when we look at executives, it the, the, one of the hypotheses is that it really increases your ability to address something like financial risk. And having that direct experience with something that's traumatic can make you more confident in risky or otherwise very challenging situations. Again, this is not, not to say that trauma is very, very important for us to address and treat. And so I don't want to take that lightly of saying, here's something that's good about it. But I think that when we think about resilience, trauma really does increase resilience. And what I think we need to figure out how we can better do is take these times of trauma, like the very collective trauma we're all dealing with right now, and work on how do we then funnel that into something that keeps people more resilient throughout their life, especially for kids. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, actually. So it's called Silicon Valley Executive Psychiatry. And you... <laughs> And you, you work with executives, like high-performing people. And I mean, to be honest, I, when I look at my life and the trajectory of my life, I've often wondered if my drive towards achieving things is coming from a healthy place or an unhealthy place. And I suspect that a lot of it comes from not such a healthy place and from the trauma in my own life and from at a young age, trying to, trying to sort of confirm externally that I was being validated in some way. So, and I'm, and I'm sure you see the same way as you just touched on with a lot of your executives and their, their resilience that comes from trauma makes them be high performing. But what, like if you take two people, right. And they have a common denominator over similar trauma. And then one person becomes the person who really can't cope with additional stress. And is the person that comes into your office stoned to have a session because they just simply can't take on whatever else is happening that day. And then you have the person who takes that trauma and becomes a super driven, successful person. Is there any understanding as to why that is different in, in different people? Yeah. And th I think that's a, that's a really whole fascinating area of research around 
when, and, and actually a lot of this research was done around Holocaust survivors. A lot of the early research, when you see this, one of the most horrendous things, period, that can exist in the world and people who, who went through similar experiences and what a range then of outcomes in terms of some being able to lead very kind of successful, thriving lives, help, have healthy family relationships and go on to kind of li live the best life that they've been able to all the way through chronic post-traumatic stress disorder order and really not being able to fulfill their dreams around family or work or society. And there, I think there really are, it's, there's a mix. I'll go back to the biopsychosocial, actually. There's a, there are even different theories around how the neurotransmitters in our brain react to different situations, which is everyone might go through the same situation. And some of us have higher or level levels, our, our brain reacts by having more higher, lower levels of these different neurotransmitters. That's just for environmental both. We, we think it's both. And I think there's been some research I remember around when looking at parents and looking at their kids where we do know that there is a genetic component around that. And there's also a very big environmental component as well. And so I think that just like all these other areas, there's both the biological component, there's the psychological and there's the, the environmental, meaning if someone was able to talk and process this early on in the right way with the right people, that, you know, th that, that ends up being this intervention that helps you change psychologically the way, how you think about the trauma you experience and what it means in your life. And then people who are looking at different environmental ways to get better, like maybe they are in, they're in groups or communities and, and talking about these things, or maybe they found a way to process the trauma, like they've written a book or they've worked with survivors in a way that has ended up being very helpful and meaningful to them as they process their own experience. All three of those biological, psychological, social, environmental end up, I think, leading to having these, these ranges of outcomes. One of the things that we've looked at actually is the point of these kind of like high, high performing individuals start. I'm in Silicon Valley and startup founders, we see they're twice as high, twice as likely to have depression, 10 times more likely to have bipolar disorder and twice as likely to have both psychiatric hospitalizations as well as suicidal thoughts. And so what we're seeing, so I think there's, there's like a mix there. Part of it is who ends up having the skills or resilience or desire to be in a profession like this, but then also what is the profession itself doing to further exacerbate or cause different issues, right? So I, and I say that because when, you know, when I think about high performing individuals like athletes or actors or musicians, it's really important to think about both of those of what, what leads to someone excelling as well as what is that professional environment doing to make things either better or worse. And, and I think then the next step there is for employers to recognize that given that these are all different professions, there's so much opportunity, I think, for employers to really be proactive and address employee mental health in, in ways that we're not seeing yet. How should we do that as an employer myself? I've observed that this has been obviously an incredibly hard year for all of us, but specifically for the for that generation that hasn't had to really test their, their resilience yet when they're in their early 20s. So what is your advice there? Yeah, I, I'd love to ask actually, what, what, have, what have you done and what have you seen? How have you seen people react? Well, it's been very difficult to keep the sense of community. We have our all hands team meetings on Microsoft Teams. When the pandemic first started, there were a lot of kind of Zoom happy hours and feedback loops and 
everybody, the feedback was that everybody just got very burned out. People were feeling very isolated, did not want to connect over Zoom. In fact, didn't want to be on screens. And I've had a hard time feeling like I can really bring the team together and to offer comfort. So honestly, I a couple of weeks ago, it struck me that I think there's a link between feeling optimistic and feeling like you have some control in your life. Like you can affect change. You have agency. You can be the person that you're supposed to be. And I think it's really hard to feel that right now. And so I think there's the optimism is waning. And so I took a different tack recently and, and basically said to the team, what I'm trying to do myself, which is really excavate to find what this is bringing up for me that I can work, that I can understand more about myself, that I can see blind spots, that I can be accountable for where I am. So instead of saying like, oh, this sucks and I feel down and now we're back in lockdown and what are we going to do? It's like, no, why, why does going back into lockdown fill me with so much dread? Like, is there something I'm not is there something I'm in denial about? Is it really lack of agency? And so just trying to encourage the team to use this as an opportunity to know themselves better and to really try to be more accountable because then I think you feel more control. And then I think I'm hoping that maybe we start to feel more optimistic. Yeah. And I I realize this is a, this is a podcast. What you can't see is I'm nodding at everything. (laughs) So if I think about what employers need and what, what exactly what you've done is, is so much of the what needs to change. The first is, it sounds so simple, but it really is just having a conversation about it and bringing this into, it's been very, as much as mental health is taboo, talking about mental health with your employer feels even more taboo because there are all these concerns around, if I then don't perform as well, are they going to, am I going to get, you know, reprimanded or will I not get that raise or just the persona and perception that people want of themselves as employees struggling with mental health doesn't align with that, right? And so I think that the first most important thing for employers to do is really come out in the open and have a conversation about it. And I think especially when this can come from the top, when like the CEO or executives or high-level managers are able to share their own struggles and be vulnerable in, in the way that feels right to you, that really changes the level of safe, like psychological safety for then others to be able to share that they too are going through something, right? This is actually something that I think has been a silver lining of the pandemic, which is, I do think that since it started, we've had this really big acceleration in kind of a decrease in stigma, which is like overnight people are now talking about struggling with mental health in ways that they never were before. And and I do think that like, if I think about six months ago compared to today, it's just so much more on everyone's radar and it's really become a part of the public conscience in a, th- in a way that I don't think it was before. So number one, talk, talk about it and have, I think having even forums, right, where it feels safe to be able to talk, where people can get some education around, this is what mental health looks like. This is what we're seeing during the coronavirus. This is, these are the ways to get help at our company. All, all of that ends up being really helpful. But then, you know, where it's not just, okay, here's what, the employer assistance program is, or here's what HR is giving out, but also then having even like small breakout groups or themed events around the things that people are most dealing or most struggling with is, is that first thing to really start to then change the corporate culture and the, that, that specific company's culture towards being more progressive about mental health. 
The second thing then really is what resources are being provided and, and the way that people are sharing them. One of the things I've been most surprised about actually is when people have pretty bad anxiety or depression or trauma and recognize the need for a medical leave, taking a week or two off, taking a month off in the way that if you had surgery, you might need to do that. That is one thing that literally every single patient I've prescribed to has said that they are better as a result of it. And oftentimes there's resistance, especially among high performers. They don't want to take time off. They don't, they think they'll be perceived as, as weak or that they're not as committed or something like that. And so it does take a while to, I think, feel comfortable taking something like a week off or a few weeks off. But as I said, literally a hundred percent of people have had their symptoms get better. And they, they then look back on it as like one of the best choices they've made for themselves. And this is when things are getting really tough. Right. And I think it's because the stress of work is just one more stressor on top of everything else. And even being able to take that away, which can be a huge trigger for depression, anxiety, insomnia, substance use, any of these things, ends up really giving you the time and space to focus on healing in a way that is really, really important. So I think that's like a second, very specific recommendation. And then the third is, is more resources. And I'm here in Silicon Valley and where, when I think about tech and the role that tech specifically can play, I think it's very exciting. And if we look from the healthcare system perspective, literally overnight, we transformed from now being a digital healthcare system. And this was years overdue, but it happened because of the quarantine and pandemic and all of the kind of isolation that we had to do, deal with. And, and then what's important is it's really working. Like even in my own practice, now I'm seeing all my patients by video. It's been really interesting. Like the no-show rate has gone down tremendously. It used to be like maybe about 20% of appointments people wouldn't come to. Now everyone makes all their appointments. And even what I've noticed is there's, there's information that you can get from people when they're in their home, right? You might see what their background looks like or what their living style looks like, or a spouse might come in and they have a quick conversation and you get to see what that interaction looks like. And all these things, that data points that you don't actually get when people are in a doctor's office, we're able to really learn more about patients, I think in a way that's really interesting. So I think that what we know that the digital kind of practice is really effective. And so insurance needs to then be able to cover video visits at the same rate as in-person and make sure that that continues to be something that people have access to. The final thing I'll say is that, so telemedicine is one thing that people have now are doing and understand. What I think is actually even more exciting is other forms of innovative technologies, like things like mobile apps and asynchronous care platforms and other digital devices, sensors, augmented and virtual reality, artificial intelligence tools, things like that, which are really the kind of emerging technologies that have entered a lot of other areas of life and are, are now kind of working their way into daily healthcare, these really allow us to provide better care to more people, higher quality and lower cost. Okay. So I have to ask you about the brainstorm lab at Stanford. What is that? And what are you working on? Absolutely. Yeah. So Brainstorm is the Stanford Lab for Mental Health Innovation, and it's the lab that I run at Stanford. And what we're doing is we're the first academic lab that's really dedicated to changing mental health through technology and technology-enabled products. 
what we try to do is bring together academia and industry and looking from kind of this multidisciplinary perspective where we're focusing on, or rather bringing in medicine, public health, technology, business, design, like all these facets of what create a product and bringing that to mental health. So I'll explain what that actually looks like. So last year, actually, we worked with Pinterest and what we did with them is we, what, what we realized rather first with Pinterest is that it's this platform that everyone goes to for things like planning their weddings or recipes or things like that. And what it turned out is that one of the most common search terms that people were bringing to Pinterest was actually related to mental health, things like stress or depression or tips for anxiety, or what do I do after a breakup or things like that. So we worked with them to create what we call compassionate search. And basically now when someone goes on Pinterest and they type in any of these words, there's actually a separate kind of window that pops up and it gives you at the same like evidence-based exercises that we might do with a patient one-on-one, but allows you to actually do it on this platform. That So one thing that we did with them is basically how do we actually give medic, like kind of therapies, what we call like micro-treatments to people when they're spending their time online, but then also how do we change the platform? Pinterest has 350 million users. How do we actually change the platform so that it's more supportive of mental health and and more most importantly less likely to cause harm or when we think about safety and things like bullying or suicidal thoughts and things like that that are very real and that people express online, how do we keep them more safe? So the the work that we did there actually with them, it decreased self-harm content by almost 90%. And so that's really when we think about what are people accessing, especially kids and teenagers, we want to think about how do we keep them safe? And what I, the reason I bring that up is I think that what we're really trying to do when we think about innovation is these are such huge problems, right? There are 2 billion people around the world who struggle with brain and behavioral health disorders. How do we think about the most innovative, most cutting edge approaches to meet them where they are, to give them care that really allows them to engage in different ways and, and do so in, in the way that like works for modern society. We, we started this conversation talking about like Freud and what kind of the, the conception of mental health looks like. And I think you don't think about, oh, I can get mental health treatment on Pinterest, right? Like, I think that that's really when we think about what does the future look like for mental health? It is, let's look at how we engage in our life. Where do we spend our time? And things like social media, things like our mobile phones really give us entirely new opportunities to think about our health, improve our health, prevent disease and and elements like that. What in terms of what right now, actually, we're working with the Tupac Shakur Foundation and addressing, thinking about how do we create tech-enabled products to address race-based trauma in the Black community. And I think that we, one of the, another thing that's come about this year is just so much more awareness of systemic racism and how we need to really think across the board about how we're going to start to change things and create better opportunities for people. And so that's, that's one of the things that we're working on now that I think if we think about like what the next few months to, can, you know, can look like and what we can really bring to the world, I think it's thinking about things like you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, and how do we bring technology into that to change these really big and difficult systemic issues. Amazing. Wow. I'm glad that it's in your hands. Feel, I feel more hopeful now than I have in a while. Thank you for joining my chat with Dr. Nina Vossen. For more information on Real and their mental well-being membership, go to www.join-real.com. That's a wrap on today's episode. 
If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.